I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Uh, we have Roy with us this morning from Montana. Roy, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. Now we, uh, for those who may not remember, we had interviewed Roy's father some time ago and you had actually walked into the room and he handed you the phone. So um, it's really great to be able to talk to you uh, about things going on there. So uh, I know you just spoke with Tom. So Tom, I'm going to let you kick this off. Yeah, uh, real good. Hey, Roy, how's it going? Good. Excellent. So uh, just kind of a real quick recap here. Roy contacted us and um, you've got some thermal images that you took. And I'm not going to give the location away, but it's somewhere uh, in the state of Montana. Um, and so maybe walk this through a little bit. You've got some uh, pictures that you took of this thing. Were you camping? Um, you know, fill us in. How did this come about? So, no, actually, uh, one of my buddies, he ran across a couple of YouTube things about Sasquatch and was asking me because he knows I've seen one. And so, um, and I've been doing, I guess you could say, some research up there. I've been going and looking for footprints and trying to see how they move and stuff to find out more about them. And so I told him I would take him up with the uh, thermal because I knew every time I've gone up, something's happened. So I, I knew that we would get an image of one moving across somewhere. And sure enough, we go up, we spent about an hour up there, didn't see anything. And then on our way down, I stopped in the spot where my dad had seen one when we were camping, standing right about 70 yards away from him out in the open. And that where uh, you can see on the thermal is about 70 yards to the right of where he's seen one when we were camping. And I was scanning across and black is hot. And I seen it move, and so I went back to it, and it was sitting there, like, swaying back and forth, clearly. And I was like, so I got everybody out of the truck to look at it. And then on the thermal, you can take pictures of it. So I snapped those pictures, and I hope to go back up and maybe get some clear photos. Hey, hey yeah. Uh, let, let me ask you, um, so, so it, it was swaying back and forth? Yeah, you know, a little bit. It just, it does it a little bit to the right and then to the left. It, just, it was just kind of swaying. And that's what caught my eyes at the movement because the wind wasn't blowing at all mm -hmm. that night, luckily. And I've learned with being out in the woods, instead of looking for a body figure i look for movement in the brush right yeah and that's how i've caught most of them is by looking for movement and not the silhouette 
so what, what, when you say that it was moving, um, was it like moving its arms or was it moving its whole body? Its whole body. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's why. And then it kind of moved down a little bit. And in picture number five, you can see you can, it kind of, you can barely just see the tops of the shoulders and the head. Mm-hmm. And that's because it kind of moved down. And when it did that, I was like, all right, we need to go. <laughs> yeah. Because we, um, we probably mm-hmm. weren't 100 yards from it. Right. I right. think we were probably only like 70 yards. Mm-hmm. Um, were you, now that I, you may have said this already, but was this in the daytime or in, it was it dark out? No, it was dark. It was probably 11 o'clock at night, midnight. Okay. And wow. I was the only one up there too. Because like I said, we were driving all around on the roads and I didn't run across anybody up there. There was nobody camping because it was starting to get cold out. Yeah, and you and I talked about this a little bit. Um, the the size, uh, kind of maybe going to a little bit, you, you thought the size, the shoulders themselves are a minimum four to five feet? Yeah, those are, where it's at, it's, the trees are pretty mature. I'd say each tree is 60, 70 feet tall. And so the tops of the trees are, you know, a good four or five feet wide. And if you look, because it's thin right at the top of one, you can see that its shoulders as wide as the tree's tops. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's a dead giveaway that it's, I don't know anybody with shoulders that big. No, no, and no. And somebody no. <laughs> who's just going to be up in the middle of nowhere at midnight. Well, and the, the swaying back and forth is, uh, Will, is that correct? Uh, that's usually an indication of agitation with yeah. these things. Yeah, and it's like most primates, when they sway back and forth, it's a clear indicator they're agitated. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. That's good to know. Hey, if, if you were to estimate, um, how, how tall do you think that it, it was? Man. Probably I mean, good solid 9 to 10. Wow. Okay. And if you guys want, I can run up there one of these days and uh, get pictures in the daytime and have somebody stand right where it was standing at. That would actually because I know that location really well. Yeah. No. No. That'd be that'd be fantastic. Um, And you know, we talked a little bit uh, before the show. You said that uh, you'd mentioned. Uh, there's kind of a general feeling that there, the population is increasing and a um, uh, significant number of people, like you thought maybe even one in 10 in that area have, have had an encounter or know somebody personally who's had an encounter. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? And Yeah, so why I think one of the reasons I think the population is growing. So where I saw that one at, it's on the great divide like right towards the top of the great divide so if you hop one ridge over um that's a completely different area and i've had a buddy who's had an encounter in there and uh it was totally different than anything we've ever gotten so i really believe it i call them clans so i really believe it's not the same clan and then one so if you're going to the right, so another one ridge over from that, so two ridges over where I got the pictures from, 
that's caught, there's a path there. And I've known three people who've had encounters on that path. And fa- fairly aggressive encounters. Rocks getting chucked at them for a half an hour. Yeah. So, that's a, well, you not know, little and- ch- rocks, too, like baseball size. Oh, really? So they're not being chucked yeah, oh, yeah. and thrown. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and is this an area that's, uh, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, but uh, pretty remote? And do you think these things are, uh, I don't want to say isolated, but um, not maybe not a lot of contact with people? The, no, I think so. Like I said, I, I know that area is like the back of my hand. This summer, I went four-wheeling up there, and I would do 80 miles at a time up there. And that's not including all the times I've snowmobiled up there. Um, so, like I said, I know the area super well. And with how I found that they move, I believe there's three to four of them in that clan. And on that mountain where I got the pictures at, I believe I call that their home base. It seems like in the evenings or right before dawn, they're always there. Or if you go up at random times, they're usually sitting there. Um, And the closest houses from there are maybe a quarter mile away down the gulch. But that's a pretty main snowmobile area up there where they're at. But I also believe that they use the mine shafts as um, in the wintertime to keep warm because that mountain is just like okay. Swiss cheese with mine shafts. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah, I was actually going to ask, do um, you think that they, they like there, there are caves there that they use maybe? Um, I don't think caves. I mean, these mines are big enough. There's some oh. of them, the entrances you could pull a car into. Gotcha. So, I mean, they're pretty good sized mines. And like I said, a lot of them interconnect um, mm-hmm. because it was the same mining company that owned them. And so I believe they use those in the wintertime. But I've also noticed too, and I don't know if you guys have heard this or not, but there's a lot of huckleberries up there and I love to go berry picking. And I <laughs> noticed they follow the huckleberries when it's in season. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. Start you out low, that. and then towards the end of the season, they'll be moved up way on top. Yeah, yeah. I've I've experienced that here in Oregon as well. Um, that's interesting. No, the <clears throat> excuse me, are the mine shafts abandoned, or are or any of them active? No, they're all abandoned. They were from the okay. early 1900s. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And we we like to go exploring a lot of the band mines around here too, because you can get dynamite boxes out of them, old shovels and stuff, some <laughs> stuff that's worth you know a little bit of money. And so we know about most of the mines on there, but we've probably spent, I mean, total. I I don't even know how many hours on that mountain, and I'd say we've only found about half of them. Wow. Okay. Hey, do, do you think that these are the same, um, like the same group of creatures, or do you think that uh, it, it might be a different group each each year? No, I, I definitely believe it's the same group on that mountain, because like I said, they always use it like home base. Um, 
after I talked to you guys, I've gone up there a couple times and when it was all, so in the winter time, they groom the road up the gulch for snowmobiles. So you can only park at the parking area. And I've gone a couple times up 11 o'clock midnight, um, up there and parked just to see if they were around. And I went up once with my dad and, uh, he ended up doing like a whoop. And then about 10 minutes later, we heard a tree knock and this dog by the house at the parking area just went ballistic. And they ended, I ended up counting two of them on the thermals. And I've learned you can't, they hide so well. You can't see them with the night vision. I've tried and tried night vision and you cannot see them with the night vision. The thermal is the only way. Yeah. Cause they can't why, hide their why, body. Um, okay. So talk, talk to me a little bit about why you can't see them with night vision, but you can with thermals. Um, so you scan with night vision and you just get, you know, the forest, trees, trunks, and that sort of thing. Um, and I, I kind of know what you're talking about. Night vision is great because you can see, but it has that kind of a two-dimensional feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah, and we flat. have pretty good night vision, but they hide behind bushes and trees. I mean, I've watched one right in the thermal turn sideways, so you know it would it could hide behind the tree. Okay, so with a thermal, for example, if it's hiding behind some bushes, you've got thermals that are capable of detecting that additional radiation from their body through the bush. Okay, yeah, through the bush. I mean, they're so big and they give off so much heat that there's just no way of hiding that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And, you know, I was going to ask you, um, if, if they're up there, you know, you said your dad, you or somebody did a wood knock and then they got a, uh, vocalization and a response. Um, anything else like whistles or shrieks or screams or anything like that, that people have reported hearing? My dad's heard a ton of like, you know, their owl sounds that they do try to sound like an owl right and he's heard tons of those and you can tell because it sounds like an 800 pound owl sitting there yes and it's right over and over and over um tons of that my and why i said that i believe there's two clans is because we the vocalizations we usually get are like that and i've never well i've only heard about three tree knocks from that clan now one ridge over my buddy was camping and I told you guys the story, and they ended up getting run out in the middle of the night because they were starting to circle their uh, camp, and they were sleeping in their cars. And he said when they put the fire out and were laying in the cars, they could hear them walking between the cars and uh, on the outskirts of the camp. And he's like, it was freaking me out because every time I'd shine the flashlight, there'd be nothing there. And he said when they had the fire going and were sitting around the fire, he heard whistling all over the place. He counted four for sure. Okay. Sitting, whistling back and forth. Wow. Yeah, so so they were kind of surrounded the area then, right? Yeah, they surrounded like their whole camp because they were up there just, you know, not paying attention. And then he started hearing the whistling and then pine cones started coming in. And then they realized that they were getting surrounded. Yeah. So, and like I said, from that group is total, totally different from 
the encounters I've had with the other group. And that's why I believe there's two different groups there. Yeah. You know, uh, one question I have, um, when like you hear, uh, rocks being thrown at, at you and, um, and others, uh, do you think that they're doing it as kind of a warning or are they actually trying to hit you and they just miss, (laughs) you know? Um, I haven't had a rock thrown at me luckily yet. Um, I think I really go off by the size of the rocks. I think if they're, you know, just want to grab your attention, they'll throw little ones. Cause like I said, they're throwing pine cones. But when my, uh, buddy who had that same encounter there, when he was with his brother, um, one ridge over and they had one thrown rocks at him for like a half an hour, he said they were baseball sized rocks. And he's like, they weren't coming, you know, he wasn't just lobbing them. He's like, whatever was throwing them was throwing them as hard as they could. Okay. And, and they stuck around? <laughs> it was down the hill a little bit, and it's a pretty steep hill, and this thing was throwing these rocks quite a ways. So, uh, did they eventually uh, decide to leave? So they, well, so they sat there for, like I said, about a half an hour, until it finally, I guess, he said it, they could hear it walk off, the rock stopped, and then they could hear it walk off, and then they booked it down the hill to the car because the car was only probably 200, 300 yards away from where they were at. But, hey, um, hey, let me, yeah, hey, hey, let me ask you, um, the, the people in that, uh, in that neighborhood or whatever, um, had you ever heard any stories um about this creature beforehand or was it was this kind of your like your first experience with this um this is like my first experience how we came about them is because the hill they live on is right next to one of our favorite camping spots and so Mm -hmm. last summer we did quite a my dad and i did quite a bit of camping up there and like i said it every time we go up there, we'd either hear hoots. Um, he heard what sounded like a baby crying one time on the hill. Mm-hmm. We, we had, I mean, every time we went up there, something would happen and it's like clockwork. So let me, uh, let me back up for a second. Um, we've heard that before people talking about hearing like, uh, a baby crying or, or a kid. And it's in an area that is, it just doesn't make sense. Is that it's kind of how this situation is? It's like, now nah, there's no baby up there? or Yeah. Uh, the only path slash road onto that hill is right through the campsite, like right next to it. So if anybody was up there, you'd know about it because it would have to go right through your camp. Yeah. And it... Like I said, in, in the wintertime, there's definitely a lot more people up there just because it's a main snowmobile route through there. Um, and I've noticed in the wintertime, they, they really hunker down on that hill because there's no snowmobile trailer trails on that hill. So not a lot of people go there. And it's right at the beginning of the main trail. So everybody just passes it. Interesting. Hey, Will, have, you, have we heard... Um other people are, have you heard of, uh, people describing like crying or, or, you know, baby sounds that these things make? 
Yeah, I've, I've heard it once or twice, not real often, but uh, on a couple occasions, uh, it's probably mimicking. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, I think Lee talked about it uh, one time as well, and he heard something like that. And see, about two days, a day before he heard that, we had uh, my nieces and nephews up there, and they're still pretty little. And so I, I think that it was trying to mimic them. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and Will, by, by the way, because um, he's talking about Montana. Is there a lot of activity in Montana that you've heard about? Yeah, it's a pretty active area. Um, I guess not much more than, you know, uh, normal places in the northwest and the western part of the country. But, yeah, it's pretty active. But that could be because there's not as many people as other places to, you know, have those encounters. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask you a question and see what you guys kind of thought. Um, I got it written down here. Oh, so I've come up with a theory that because my dad was like, oh, you know, how could we coax one out to see it and i've learned these things always stay to the shadows no matter what they always have cover and i got thinking about it i was like man the only way to get one out in the open i think it's if you started feeding them which in my mind has really bad re if you stop you're in trouble if you start feeding them and i was just seeing what you guys thought on that if that would be a good way to no, get you, one you, out in the open is to feed them. You don't want to start feeding them. <laughs> what you, what yeah. you mentioned is exactly correct. If you stop, then there could be a lot of trouble. And I really believe, so I have a diesel truck, and I'm really starting to think that they know my truck. You know, that's actually a really good question. Um, Will, what do you think that they can actually get to the point, probably quickly, where they recognize a specific vehicle and specific people yes, in, that in is an correct. area. That is correct. They do. If you go in there repeatedly, they will get to know your face and your vehicle and the sound of your vehicle, so they'll know uh, it's you. Yeah. And, and Will, uh, by the way, too, I mean, because, you know, we've talked before about how their range is, you know, I think you said like 500 miles, and they can come back and they can recognize instantly you know, like a, like a truck or a, or a sign or something like that. Um, so th they're very, very intelligent. Yes, extremely so. And they're very intimate uh, in the knowledge of their areas throughout their ranges. So uh, and, if something is different there or if somebody is there, um, they're keenly aware of that. And they can recognize, like, dogs and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Well, you know, I was going to comment. It, it, it really makes sense that they have that ability because, you know, anybody who owns a dog or even a cat knows that that animal knows when your car comes home. So if something that has the intelligence of a dog <clears throat> can do it, these things, which are primates, it just stands a reason they just have that much more of an ability. Yeah, exactly. I, I know when I used to visit my parents' home when I was stationed at Fort Lewis, my mom always knew when I was coming home because my dog would hear my pickup more than a mile away and he'd start barking. She always knew when I was coming because the dog would bark. <laughs> okay. Hey, hey, you know, Will, I, I have a question. Um, 
kind of on that note a, a little bit, but um, be, because we always think of these things as being like one group, um, and obviously we know there are, you know different types and everything like that. But do you think that uh, one of them would possibly like attack like a, another young one, um, different group and everything? But I mean, like if it's vulnerable. Would they attack that and eat that? Um, well, it's certainly possible. I mean, uh, primates typically are very territorial. Uh, and if there was something, you know, one, say, from an outside group, they may. We don't know. But it's very possible. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, we, we think of these things as like one species, but actually there are different families and different groups and everything. So it just seems like kind of likely that um, if they saw uh, a young, vulnerable one, that they would probably attack it and eat it. But uh, but who knows? I mean, who knows? And, and when you look at other primate groups... Um you know, typically, and not just primates, a lot of animal species, if a male comes along and this young one or young ones are not its offspring, you know, they oftentimes are attacked and killed. And that's kind of a mechanism to uh, keep your genes, you know, moving from one generation to the next, uh, you know, is by killing off ones that don't belong to you. It's kind of gruesome sounding, but uh, it's a fact of nature. So, would these things do it? Possibly. We just don't know. Right. Right. I was going to ask Will if uh, you've noticed this, but when they move um, to different areas, I notice they don't go like on top of the ridge tops. They stay in about the middle of the mountain and cut across. Have you noticed that? Uh, it really depends on the group and the terrain. You know, I, I've seen oh, okay. all kinds of different locations and, and moving you know, from one area to the next feeding. So it really, it really, terrain dictates that movement. Okay. Because up there, I've always noticed whenever I catch them, it's always about halfway up the mountain. In that location, what's the visibility like down below? Uh, fairly poor just because of all the trees. And this one main trail they use, um, it's an old, it was an old, mining trail and it's not quite wide enough for a car and there's a bunch of trees overgrown now and i've noticed when you're on that trail and if someone's down at the road they can't see you but you can see them and i've noticed that's like their favorite trail to take and that trail goes all the way around i mean it wraps around probably close to 10 miles okay that's probably your answer right there um if they have good visibility They'll use uh, landmarks to navigate by going large distances. Uh, but since they have the trail in that particular location that offers that concealment and it's a nice, easy uh, pathway, that's why they're using it in that particular location. Okay, and that's kind of what I was thinking. Hey, well, this is kind of a question for, uh, well, actually for, for all of you, I, I guess, but... Um, when you have an encounter, do they actually growl? I mean, do they breathe heavy? Or, um, I mean, like, what's your kind of experience like w w with um, them, like maybe growling or, or whatever? 
Well, it just depends on the individual and what's going on. I mean, I, I was growled at once. I know other people have been growled at multiple times uh, in areas hunters. Uh, many people, not at all. It really depends on the circumstances of what they're doing and what you're doing. Yeah, it's an interesting question, though. Um, and I would assume that a growl is a, is a challenge or a warning. Would you agree? I'll tell you what, the one time I was growled at, I felt like it was a warning. Uh, and I made a quick retreat from that spot. <laughs> you know, and I imagine, <clears throat> excuse me, that they probably, uh, you know, when they do growl at people, they get that response. Uh, and so they know, all I got to do is, if I want this person to leave, I growl at them. I'll tell you what, it's gone. a very unnerving experience. So it's not something like you're going to stand there and think, oh, what is that? Your instant response uh it's almost an autonomic autonomic response is to get the hell out of that spot <laughs> yeah and of course they, they they mimic um a lot of like animal like like he was saying like you know uh whether it's owls or even cats or dogs they mimic those sounds so. yeah that's where we get that report a lot yeah yeah and and native people said that also yeah, I was um, going to add. Okay. Yeah, go go, go ahead. No. Okay, I was going to add. Um, one of the reasons I think they throw things at people is because they're trying to see if you know that they're there. Because I've noticed when they know that you know that they're there, it's totally different than if you're just walking around and have no idea that they're there. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, the behavior does change. Um, and it's, it's not a bad idea to, to sort of let them be aware that you're aware of them, but don't focus on them being there. Um, you know, if you if you want to, you talked about wanting to have one come out, um, the quickest way is to ignore them, but they know that you're aware of them. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no that, that's, a, that's a, a great point. I think that um, sometimes they probably just want you to be aware that they're here and they know that you're here. <laughs> so they probably just kind of want you to get the hell out. But um, Now, it depends yeah. on, on the demeanor of the rock throwing, too. Like you mentioned, if it's pine cones and smaller rocks, it's not, not a real aggressive mm -hmm. type throwing. That could be something they're trying to do is to get elicit a response like, hey, you know, we're over here, you know, be aware of that. Uh, if it's a more aggressive rock throwing, let's say, you know, baseball or cannibal, uh, cantaloupe size rocks and they're coming in with some force, uh, they're not happy that you're there. So you want to get out of that area. You're, you're in the wrong place. Yeah. Hey, Will, uh, so here, here's kind of a random question, but um, since you've been tracking footprints, um, and obviously we know that there are different types and everything, but have the footprints changed over time, or have they gotten bigger, smaller, or uh, like just different in, in nature? Or No, footprints, footprints are one of the constants. Uh, you can go back now. We have examples of, of footprints from at least photographically since the 1930s, maybe longer. Uh, I'd have to go back and research it a bit, but I, I mean, I know for sure the 30s, 1934 was one photograph. Uh, 
thousands of footprints from all over the place. I mean, literally everywhere. Uh, and they just, they don't change. That's one of the constants. You get variation between individuals, as one would expect, but uh, in terms of size, shape, etc., they're the same. Yeah. I mean, have you ever tracked uh, a, a print that, uh, like, you knew it was a juvenile and then it got bigger and you could tell it's the same one? Or um, We do see that occasionally, but most often you're going to find the adults out on the uh, on the outside edges of their feeding area so right um yeah and i typically don't don't do a great deal of penetrating those areas if i know where they're feeding you know i try to observe what's going on from the outer edges of that and, and try not to get in the inside but some places uh some investigations we've been able to go into um the areas they were active at night and find different footprints and, and different behaviors. But, uh, you know, we respected those boundaries and stayed out of those areas at night when they were in there. And they seemed, <laughs> to, be, and they seemed to be okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to back up for a second. Um, I, I found it interesting. I didn't realize that there was footprints going back to the 30s. You know, I kind of thought this whole thing, uh, at least for... You know, for the majority of the people, the whole story, I guess, broke open in the 50s, but actually goes back earlier than that. So can you where where were those photographs? You know, what state was it? California or uh, just curious? Um, Well, there was a photograph in one of John Green's. I think it was John Green's first book on the track of the Sasquatch. And uh, the photograph was from. I believe it was Northern California. I'd have to go back and see. Sorry about that on the detail. But uh, the photograph was taken by a gentleman named Dave Zebo. It was in 1934, and the tracks were in the snow. Wow. Okay. And I'm just, you know, I, I try to put myself in, in the mind of the person taking that picture and what were they thinking because, you know, they didn't quite have the knowledge that we have of these things today. Um, I want, do you think they knew that it was uh, what made the footprints? I'm, I'm going in the realm of speculation, I realize. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think they must have known it was something not human, obviously. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I was trying to look up that reference to see if there was any information. Well, well, well um, just, just a question. Um, before you met John Green and uh, Renee, um, how much knowledge do they have about th this creature like like before you met them i mean like how like so you you saw the, the the tracks in the snow and everything but um did they actually know exactly what that was oh yeah well these green and Hinden had been involved in this since um the late 1950s so by the time yeah. I met them in 1975, they had known quite a bit. I mean, they'd already been through most of this stuff. So, okay. yeah, they were very familiar with it. Okay, yeah, because I, I was just wondering, like, you know, um, if you go back to, like, religious stories and, like, in Native American accounts and everything, like, they, like they yeah, obviously they, they knew that things, these things existed um, way before than the um the patterson film you know well and largely they were responsible for patterson being in that location and getting the film 
Um, right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they were they were very knowledgeable about about all of that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little tongue tied there. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's. I'm gonna have to look up that reference. I'm not seeing it. I don't want to sit here and you know thumb through all these books. <laughs> <laughs> I had a question for you, you guys, and see what you think. A lot of people said that you know they think they hide their tracks, but I've noticed there's a lot of springs in that hill that they or that mountain that they stay on. Um, and I've noticed that they stay out of the muddy areas, and I I think it's just because they don't like the feeling the mud going between their toes because then you get rocks and stuff that could very well be i mean it just depends i I mean we don't know what's in their minds when they're going through these um you know when they're going through different areas it could be they're they're trying to or being aware of their footprints and if they're not well i guess whether they are or not doesn't matter uh it could be that you know a lot of them just don't like you said don't like the feeling of that they don't i mean if you have to live out in those environments you probably don't want to go walking through you know a foot of mud if you don't have to yeah what kind of springs um roy are they just like natural springs that uh you know coming out of the mountain or yeah a lot of them are natural on some of them they run out of the mine entrances um, okay. There's there's quite a few springs. I mean, I can count four to five of them that I sure. know of. And so it gets pretty wet in the springtime when the water tables are starting to come up. Right, right. Um, so I'm assuming with these natural springs, uh, they're going to be um, other animals are going to go there and you know drink and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, and, and that's one reason I think they chose that as their main staying place is because I've noticed through that area, that's where the deer move more through because they go down to right below this gulch is a little town and they move through that area to go to that town to go eat uh, more trees and flowers, you know, people have around their houses. Right. Hey, fellas. Well, I, you know, yeah. Oh, good. I, I was just going to, didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I wanted to kind of insert real quick the Dave Zebo photograph information. I did find it. Um, the Humboldt Times in Eureka, November, November 18, 1960, carried a photograph taken by Zebo and Arcata in 1934 showing bipedal tracks, which followed, which he followed to the peak of a 6,900-foot Weaver Bali Mountain. They took strides up to six feet despite the deep snow and the deep and the steep slope. Sorry for the mistakes there, folks. But uh, so that's that's the info on one of the earliest known photographs of footprints. Wow. Well, that's interesting. I, I wish I wish that guy was still around. It'd be interesting to talk to him and see what was in his mind. And I did have I did put the photograph in my first book, Notes from the Field, as well. Oh, okay. Good, good, good. Hey, hey, Roy. I was going to ask. Um, did you get any uh, description of like the facial features of the creatures that you saw? Um, no, I I couldn't see him well enough through the thermal. The one that my dad saw, he got really good facial descriptions of it, and he noticed that it didn't have a conical head, and that one in the thermal, it didn't look like to me that it had a conical head. 
and you oh. see it. And he said too, he noticed that the head was, it looked really small for the body. And in those thermal pictures, you can see how little the head is compared to the shoulders. So he thinks it's the same one that he saw. Um, I'm not too sure. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's three to four of them up there. Right, right. But I haven't seen the others. I've only seen just thermals of, you know, of them. And yeah. They're all about the same size from what yeah. I've seen. Yeah. Well, yeah, one thing I was going to mention, uh, just going back real quick on the springs, is that could be an area of interest for them year-round because the spring typically isn't going to freeze even in the wintertime because you got movement in the water, unless it just gets exceptionally cold. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do, you, do the springs freeze over, or do they? Um... Most of the springs up there, they either freeze over or else they dry up, unless it's coming out of a mine. Then all you have to do is go 100 feet back where the air's warmer, and the water's still flowing. Okay, so at least they have I a think that's constant one of water the reasons source. Too. Yeah, they have a constant water source. And like I said, the deer, I've noticed, don't go up the gulch. They they stop about at the campsite, and then they move between the campsite and the town, and that's it. They will not go above that gulch. Okay, so they stay in the lower elevations, and they probably have a, uh, they have a sense maybe that these things are up there. And I, I think so, and I, I think that's one of the reasons they stay there, too, is because it is kind of close to ta- that town up there. And I'm talking, it's like 15, 20 people that live up there in this town. And I think that's one reason they stay there is because the deer are always around there. That's the only place I've ever seen deer up there. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, you know, and another thing I want to kind of back up on, uh, uh, get your comments on are the huckleberries. Cause that's kind of, uh, a thing that I've sort of zeroed in on uh, with some of them here in here in Oregon. Um, so you you say they kind of follow the harvest of the ripening of these things. Like so, in other words, down in the lower elevations, the huckleberries will do they ripen sooner or after than the ones in the upper higher elevation? Um. They usually ripen after because up in the higher elevations, it gets colder. So the time for them to ripen, it seems like usually you have to catch them within like a two-week period. Yes. And I've noticed too, like I said, they, they go a lot further out. There's areas that I'll go that I've never had anything happen. And I'll start hearing something walking around. You can tell that they're there. You know what I mean? And so during the huckleberries, and that's why I believe they followed the huckleberries, is because I'll catch them in areas that I've never seen them in or heard them in. Yeah. Hey, yeah, I, I was going to ask, um, do you ever hear, like, screams in your area? Like, um, you know, screams or, uh, you know, shouts or uh, th- things like that? So right on the backside of where they live on that mountain um my dad was up there four-wheeling and he heard a scream i haven't heard a scream yet um and i don't know what's with that he said it was quite a ways away but one thing i do notice too is 
when they're there a lot more is people run cattle up there and quite a bit of cattle and uh-huh. cab up there usually. And so I've noticed, and the cattle like to hang on the other side of that mountain because it's, a, it drops down into a big meadow. Oh, okay. No, and no. so I think, and I think that's one reason they stay there is just because the deer and the cattle, they have so much food. But then, like I said, when the huckleberries come in, they start moving around. They kind of follow the huckleberries. I, I, I know for a fact they have a sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. Right. I get that. <laughs> uh, so do you know any of the ranchers who have cattle? I'm just curious if there's any reports of calves or cows being uh, killed or mutilated or you know uh, attacked by these things. I've seen dead cows up there. I've been trying to find the ranchers and ask them that because I'm kind of interested. I'd like to see, you know, how many cows he loses in a season up there. Um, yeah. See if it's more than normal. And, so you've but seen I haven't the, been able to find out who runs the cows up there. Right. So you've seen dead cows up there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, Did you notice uh, any? Okay. Did you notice any of the, you know, like, like, was it, was it torn open? Was it, uh, feasted on, you know, and I just wonder if you'd noticed anything like that. The ones I've seen, they were fairly decayed, but it was mostly the stomach and then the back hindquarters that were gone. Okay. Interesting. But I've found quite a few cow skulls up there too, wandering around. Are the cow skulls uh, just by themselves, or are they with one of the dead cows? No, they're usually always by themselves. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to zero in on that a little bit because I found, um, and we've talked about this before, uh, Will, where it's possible that sometimes they'll use that for baiting. Yeah, it's possible. I, I wanted to mention something, too, or ask something. Um, you said the cows typically stay on the other side of the mountain from where these things are active. Is that correct? Yeah, so when you start up the gulch about a quarter mile on the left-hand side, that's where they, I call it, their home base is. And it's a big, like, finger all the way up to the top of the divide, and then if you take a left on the back side of that, it drops down into a big meadow. Oh, I see. Okay, so they they know they have a good advantage point then uh, vantage point of the the pasture down there and the cattle. Oh yeah, and I think one of the reasons too they stay there is because it's at the beginning of the gulch, so they know who goes in and out. Because you can't get up there unless you go through that area or you go on the like 40 miles away and then it's like a 30 mile uh back road trip up to there to that spot because there's roads all over the uh continent divide i i can start out here and make it 50 miles to butte just in back roads so they they have pretty good vision that's what you're saying (laughs) Yeah, from that point, yeah, on top of that, yeah, they yeah. they can see both sides of right where yeah. people are coming in and that whole meadow. And it, it's a good-sized meadow. It's it's probably a mile wide by two miles long. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that is a good size. Um, 
in the meadow, do you ever see any evidence, footprints or anything that they've been in the meadow or do they just kind of hang out in the, uh, in the tree line and inside the woods? In the summertime, they usually stayed at, at the, towards the bottom of the meadow. Um, it starts getting pretty, a lot of timber in there. And I've noticed that's where they hang out in there. And I think they're waiting for deer to cross the meadow or something. But in the wintertime, all that gets drifted in. So there'll be six, seven feet of snow in there. And so in the wintertime, <laughs> okay. I've noticed they, they don't go in there really. Right. No Although reason to. I was snowmobiling down there once. And when I went on this trail to get to a different part, um, and when I came back, there was a log pulled over the trail. Oh, really? Yeah, and and the spot, it's in the bottom of the meadow where it's real thick in timber, too. And I noticed, I was looking around one day, and it looks like they almost have blinds set up in there. Like, you, you can tell that trees have been stacked. Not just falling over, but literally stacked. Well, like they've manipulated, <clears throat> excuse me, manipulated the trees. Uh, does it look like they're creating a kill zone or a blind, do you think, to hide in? Um, I think a kill zone, honestly, because it's always on the either side of this trail. And it's a snowmobile trail, but I noticed in the summertime, a lot of the cows use it and a lot of the deer and rabbits use this trail through there. Okay. Yeah, no, I was asking because that's something we've heard before. They they definitely manipulate their environment to create a... Uh, kill zone and that makes sense you know i, I mean it's uh less energy to uh get their food source yeah so so roy i was going to ask um have you been uh since then or uh you know at, like afterwards or um after the thermal images right yeah 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 i have um i went up there I think twice after that, and now it's so snowed in that it's only snowmobile in, and I was going <laughs> to do that if I'm not working. Um, I work construction, so I'm seasonal, so if we weren't working this week, I was going to go up there and look for footprints and see kind of where they've been. Right, yeah, gotcha. And during the holiday season, everybody's kind of been out of there. No one's really been going in, and now that it's snowed in, Exactly. It's snowmobile yeah. access only, but there's not enough snow to attract a lot of snowmobilers up there. So yeah. I think there should be a lot of movement up there just because nobody's really been up there. Yeah, yeah. But when my dad, I was going to say, when my dad heard that scream down in the bottom of that uh, big meadow, there was cows down there, and he said the cows just went nuts after that. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that's one of the reasons I think they use the cattle as a feed source, too. And uh, I'm not talking, like, 30 head. This guy probably runs five, 600 head up there or more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that would be a real good food source. And, Will, you know, you talked about when you're, uh, when you're a kid on uh, – wasn't there a time on your own farm when the cows, you came home and they're all sort of bunched up or they're, they're in the barn um, kind of skittish over something out in the forest? Yeah, this was back around 1968 when I was 10. Um, it, the cows were all in the barn with their heads sticking out in their ears, you know, very intently watching the tree line. 
and uh, and then my mom called me over to look, and there was something really big at the tree line. We couldn't see it because of the uh, very very thick foliage, but it was just thrashing the hell out of the brush at the edge. So I, we knew it wasn't. I knew it wasn't a bear. I mean, at that age, I knew what had run into a bear earlier. So I knew they weren't doing that exact kind of behavior, but uh, yeah, they were pretty scared, and they shouldn't have been there at that time of day. Yeah, and of course, w- w- Willie was a was a great, great colleague. So uh, you know, he, he would tell you if if there was something out there, like <laughs> you know. So yeah, so Willie, right? Well, he was he was later. Um... We got, oh, him, we got him in 1970 uh, after oh. we moved from that location. But I did have another collie before that at that location who was, you know, the dogs, uh, they pretty much stayed around the house when we lived back there. They didn't really, I mean, unless they were going with the kids out in the fields. Yeah. They didn't, our dog didn't really go out there venturing by himself much. And I never, never really thought about it as a kid, but uh, he yeah. always stayed near the house. But what was so interesting about Willie, though, is that like he ran to the the fence line, the tree line, and he knew that oh, I have to go back, you know. <laughs> and then um, I guess that's when you had your encounter. But um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't so much he he had to go back. Yeah. I, I watched him. You know, he always you know I if I told him hey, yeah let's go, he'd always be out a hundred feet or so in front of me, and he ran up to the tree line and he froze. And it was mm-hmm. a very, um, like a very tense posture. And, and, then, yeah. and then he turned around really quickly and ran back past me <laughs> at top speed. So he was pretty spooked by whatever was there. And then, of course, I ran into those two. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so real quick, I'll... Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Real quick, I'll add this. Um, speaking of dogs, I've started taking dogs up with me when I go... And a lot of people might get mad at this, but I always take them off leash because I've learned that dogs will let you know what's around the corner before you get there. Because like Will said, you know, my dogs are always yeah. 100 feet in front of me or so. Yeah. And they'll pause instantly and the hair stands up. No, you're right. A dog's a great early warning device. And I've learned that that's about the best warning advice for knowing when these things are around. Yeah, absolutely. They know when something's around that... Uh, and, and we'll give you that warning. Hey, well, so has the um, Fish and Wildlife Agency ever commented on this subject, or are they just trying to stay away from it? Well, I think like most agencies, they don't take an official stand because uh, they don't want throngs of, um, you know, people that are would-be investigators yeah. or yeah. looky lose or what have you, you know, overflowing an area, you know, or, or an I told you so kind of situation or what have you. Um, it, I'm sure it's much better to take a, a non-stance than it is to try to support or debunk anything like this. Yeah, because I'm sure that they probably know about the subject, but they, like you said, they're, they're trying not to say anything about it, you know, so... Yeah, it's just it's just good official policy to uh, not get involved in something that's not uh, yet proven, you know, because it's it's just bad bad management on their part if they were to. 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of think it's the reputation of the game warden, too. I know the guy, the main game warden that flies up here, he flies a helicopter and counts all the animals and gets numbers. And I kind of was poking around, seeing what he thought and seeing if he's ever seen anything weird. And all he said is, I- I've seen things that you wouldn't believe, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you know, I've actually heard that from a few a few uh, officials, quote-unquote, uh, and that's kind of the way it is. You know, they they may or may not know, uh, but if they do, they're not going to say a whole lot. Yeah. Well, fellas, we're starting to run a little short on time. Any final thoughts or questions? No, I just want to thank Roy for coming on and uh, sharing the experience. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so just thanks. And Happy New Year to everybody. <laughs> And again, I want to say the same thing. Uh, ditto what Brian said. Uh, Roy, thanks for coming on, and please stay in touch. You know, keep us updated with, uh, you know, as you have new encounters and new information. Uh, you know how to get a hold of us, so uh, yeah, don't be a stranger. Yeah, Roy. Oh, I definitely it. will. And thank you. And, and oh, and, sorry. And oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we are we are planning to come there uh, this summer, most likely. So. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that for the moment, but stay in touch and we'll keep you informed about what our plans are. So we have some big operations coming up. Okay. I definitely will. Um, um, yeah. And if you guys let me know ahead of time, I'll gather all the people I've known had encounters around here okay. and so you guys can get their eyewitness testimony and I'll take you around to all these spots. Okay, great. Roy, thank you so much and everyone have a happy new year. Um, we're going to take a short break, folks. Stand by. We'll be back in three minutes. I think it's three minutes. <laughs> in Bigfoot history, Nikowitz Creek drainage, west of Bluff Creek, Northern California, early 1960s. Jay Rowland, Willow Creek, tells finding Bigfoot tracks near his campfire at night after two hounds had been killed by something they chased in the dark. He told me the hounds had been torn in two. Welcome. This encounter is brought to you by William Jevning and is entitled Tracks Found 2001 on Payne Ranch, Cavello, Mendocino County, California, Mendocino National Forest. September 2001, 1700 hours, nearest water, Skunk Lake, closest road would be NFS Road M1. I was deer hunting in an area known as the Payne Ranch when I observed a single track on the bank of the creek. I have been hunting for 20 years and have taken several bears over the years in this area. At first I thought I was looking at a bear track. I was approximately 10 feet from the track when I saw it. As I got closer, I realized that it was much larger than a black bear track. It was located in a muddy, sandy spot between some rocks. I inspected the track and discovered that it was approximately four times as long as a 7mm Remington Magnum shell case and approximately two and a half cases in width near the toes. 
It had the appearance of a distorted human foot with a distinct large toe on the right side and four smaller digits to the right of the larger digit. The ground was dry enough that there was no water within the impression. This area is fairly remote, and I did not encounter any other hunters in the area. I searched the surrounding stream bed for more tracks, but did not locate any. I did not have a camera with me to photograph the track. This area is a very dense wooded location. It has a tree canopy of oak, pine, bay, and cedar. The rocks were all covered with moss due to the shade, and although it was September, it was easily 15 degrees cooler within the creek bed. There are numerous caverns and many deadfalls along the stream. Water is available here year-round. The banks ascend at approximately 50 degrees away from the stream. I believe it's made up of volcanic rock. I never saw a source of the print. However, I did note that while there, the surrounding woods were very quiet. No sound of birds or squirrels or frogs. I am very aware of sound while hunting and have noticed that when a large predatory animal is nearby, smaller animals become quiet. I stayed in the immediate area for almost an hour, hoping to get a glimpse of what I know made this track, but did not see or hear it. I did hear what sounded like a dog panting at one point above me, but it was for only a few seconds. I returned to the site the next morning, but did not find any other tracks. I relocated my original track site, but it had changed drastically due to an evening thunderstorm. I returned to the same area during the second week of November for a late-season archery deer hunt. It snowed while I was there, and I brought a camera hoping to locate another track, but I did not. I am of the firm belief that this track was made by an animal other than a bear or human. I can only say that it has impacted me greatly. I hope to re-encounter this forest creature again. Hopefully, I will have my rifle or bow at the ready to provide final proof and documentation to all. I know that many would feel that shooting a Sasquatch would be wrong, but if the opportunity presented itself, should it be done? I spent 11 years as a sheriff's deputy and would exercise extreme caution before shooting at the unknown. I just feel that an actual specimen would end all of the speculation and prove the creature is real. I have had several discussions with my fellow hunting partners, and we all agree that if we observed one over a period of time in a remote location, from a short distance, and positively knew it not to be some idiot in an ape suit, we would shoot it. How do you feel about this? I've heard that Patterson had a rifle with him at Bluff Creek and shot film rather than bullets. Frankly, I didn't really believe in this until that track was there for my own eyes to witness. Now I can't help but observe the wilderness differently. I wonder all the time if I will someday actually see what made that print. As a hunter, all I can say is, we deal in lead, friend. I would feel much more at ease talking about seeing Bigfoot with one on the cover of National Geographic after a sportsman killed one. To conclude... I hope that someone is able to capture one or film one over several days to provide further evidence so that none have to be needlessly killed, but I feel it's probably the only way to end this conclusively. Vince Crudell Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. 
If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.